Hey, it's Nick. And before we get started on this week's PreserveCast, I want to take a quick opportunity to thank you for all you've done and to ask for your support. So tomorrow is Giving Tuesday. And all today, what we're calling Maryland Monday, we're fundraising to support our work, including this podcast and our Battlefield Preservation Program. You can learn more about that at presmd.org. So if you've enjoyed this podcast this year, which has been weekly since the pandemic hit, I hope you'll make a quick gift. This podcast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and $10 would go a long way and would be very helpful. Thanks so much. And now, let's get on with PreserveCast. From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Change can be difficult. Building momentum, engaging diverse audiences, and bringing history to life is the tough stuff of preservation and community development. Today's guest, Dana Saylor, has made it her mission to help fellow preservationists, artists, community leaders, and interested citizens in developing strategies that turn ideas into action. On this week's PreserveCast, we're talking the nuts and bolts of making change happen with a leading voice for this critical and timely work. Hey, it's Nick here, and before we get started, just a quick reminder to please consider making a donation. Even $5 would go a really long way, and you can do it at PreserveCast.org. Also, would you be willing to give us a five-star rating and maybe a quick review? We haven't had a new review in way too long, and I need your help. And finally, today's episode is made possible thanks to the support of the 1772 Foundation. Now, let's make some change happen. Dana Saylor is a creative community connector and mentor to fellow changemakers. Her work is about building emotional connection to place. She's based in Buffalo, New York, and an advisor to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. She can be reached at Dana at DanaSaylor.com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are very excited to be once again joined by Dana Saylor, who is a, a mentor and coach to DIY community change makers. And for our diehard PreserveCast listeners, you might remember that Dana joined us back on episode 52. I'm sure everyone remembers that very, very distinctly, uh, where we talked about a specific project she was worked on. So she's actually only our second repeat guest. But on this episode, we're going to really dive deep into how she supports change makers across the country and some of the really exciting work that she's doing to try and um, uplift um, other community change makers like herself. So for those of you who perhaps missed episode 52, and and how dare you for doing that, um, and you can always go back and listen to it, but uh, let's remind everyone a little bit about your background, Dana. Where did you grow up and what put you on this unique career path um, to doing the work that you do. Hey, Nick, thanks for having me. Um, I grew up in very rural central New York in a very small town um, that literally had one flashing traffic light. And uh, so I grew up near the Sterling Renaissance Festival, for those of you who are from um, upstate New York. And um, I always was confused by the way that we drove everywhere. I knew that it you had no choice, but I was always wondering, why didn't we live in town? And um, And I wasn't a huge fan of having to drive half an hour to get to everything. But, um, you know, and then my my early exposure to urbanism was uh, Sesame Street. So I really was fascinated by the urban landscape that they showed there, the diversity of people. I was just 
taken in by that because it was so completely opposite what I grew up experiencing. I think I knew from then that I really wanted to experience cities and towns, um, even smaller towns. So I started to uh, live in larger towns, um, starting with the town that I went to college in, which was uh, a bit larger than where I grew up, which is Oswego. And um, then I moved to Utica, New York, and I lived there for eight years and uh, moved to Buffalo in 2008, right before the uh, economic collapse. <laughs> and, um, and being in Buffalo turned me into an architectural historian from uh, a person who had been interested in the past in genealogical history. That was really my focus before, and it was more for fun than anything else. So launching into architectural history and wanting to know the history of any place I lived or looked at um, was really what got me started down the path of being a full-time historian. And I got back into my art career through a group called ELAB, Emerging Leaders in the Arts Buffalo, which was forming in January of 2010, a couple years after I got there. And um, that, that group brought me back to my fine art roots. Um, that's what my training is in. So um, combining those things um, brought me to a number of really interesting creative projects in the area, many of them volunteer. And that um, led us to everything from uh, our monthly art critiques to the City of Night Art Festival that we threw at the Grain Elevators here in Buffalo and a number of other events and happenings and initiatives and preservation activism, um, which came kind of alongside um, through Buffalo's Young Preservationists and other groups that I was a part of. So um, saving the Bethlehem Steel Administration Building may not have been a success, but it taught me a great deal and connected me to so many other preservationists in the area. So all the sort of the dominoes started falling and all of my different interests started to merge. So I, I think, you know, if, if people don't already get a sense for this, you're one of the most eclectic preservationists that I know. Um, and there's sort of just this beautiful tapestry of different things that you weave together. Um, and, and I think people kind of got a sense from that from what you described here, where everything from fine art to advocacy to throwing events in cool spaces. Um, is there a common thread to all of this? Is there something that like, you know, I guess the cliche question is like, what gets you out of bed every day? But, you know, <laughs> is there is there something that is that is that is a common thread to all of this? Like what what pulls it all together? And I guess kind of like what motivates you when it comes to this? I think that it is what initially inspired me so much about Buffalo. And it was a love of historic places. But beyond that, an emotional connection to place. I wanted to understand why did I feel things about places? Um, and I knew that I was interested in history. I knew that I was interested in antiques and old movies and all sorts of things that were um, fascinating remnants of the past still with us. And so I wanted to understand why for myself and why for others do we have an emotional connection to place and how can that be leveraged to the benefit of everybody in the community? And that's essentially what I say, you know, when people ask me what, why, why do I do what I do is because um, I believe in creating, sustaining, and improving emotional connection to place. Um, I've seen it work wonders um, with the, the art festival at the Grain Elevators. I mean, I learned a great deal about why do people care about something when people were knocking down the doors to come into that. Um, thousands and thousands of people streaming in, and I just didn't even understand what we had on our hands. You know, and it was because people had either a family connection through work there, you know, grain scoopers, or they had always stared at them and seen them as eyesores. You know, there were all these different reasons. 
it all comes down to emotional connection. That was what drew people. They were photographers. They were urban explorers. They wanted to feel something and they wanted to feel it in an authentic place that um, mattered to them in some way. So that's really what I cultivate in all the work that I do, whether I'm teaching people or I'm uh, running events or I'm starting a nonprofit. It's, it's always about that. So I think it's interesting that you say that because I think all too often the preservation community, and I imagine you'd agree with this, um, puts buildings or places or the, the actual physical stuff at the center of the conversation. And you're reframing that and putting people and emotion at the center of it, which is really where it should be, right? I mean, buildings don't really matter unless there's people in them. I mean, I guess some some people might argue otherwise, but I definitely am a believer in that, um, which is why I was excited to have you back because you've really pivoted, not pivoted, but you've taken what you've learned and now you're trying to help other people. And so there's, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast um, all across the country who are trying to do some of the things that that you've excelled at or that you've had experience in doing. Um, and so, you know, now you're really beginning to focus on supporting these change makers and putting emotion in people in, in the center of these conversations. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe to, to kind of set the, the, the stage for that conversation, what inspired you to go down that route? And, and I suppose maybe what are you hoping to accomplish? And, and we'll talk a little bit more about how people can get engaged with this and what, what you're, what you're offering out there. But, um, Let's let's set, kind of set the stage for uh, this this concept and and what you're working on now. So I got interested in doing this um, for a number of different reasons, but largely I started to shift into mentoring, coaching, teaching, whatever you want to call it. Um, before the pandemic started, I was interested in doing speaking engagements and sort of teaching adults. Um, I've always been interested in teaching adults because um, it's who I relate to most easily. And, um, you know, a lot of people are like, I want to teach kids because they just get it. They're sponges, whatever. But I actually, um, I like to work with adults because often we have preconceived notions about things. Um, whether those are you know, I automatically love all historic buildings because they're beautiful and I look at them and they're aesthetically pleasing or all old things should probably go or um, or other preconceived notions that people have, which is that, you know, they would talk to me about things like City of Night and they would say, well, I could never pull something like that off. Or even smaller things like running the local chapter of Urban Sketchers. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people do not perceive themselves to be leaders and they don't understand their own value. So I'm really, I have set out with an additional mission on top of the emotional connection to place, which is to help people who also feel an emotional connection to place like I do, to go out into their communities and actually do the things that they've been envisioning. Because a lot of people experience that feeling of somebody ought to do something about this, whether that's a pothole in the road or, um, you know, uh, an example of something I recently was working on is the Buffalo Blueprint Project, trying to get all the sadly disorganized and poorly conserved um, blueprints at the city, at City Hall and the vault to be conserved and scanned and things like that. You know, so you have these experiences where you encounter something, you get inspired by something and you want to do something about it, but then you may not know how or have the tools or connections or resources that you need. So basically I'm providing those things and helping people to understand that they too can lead a project um, and, or they could inspire a project and, and invite other people to come in as leadership. You know, um, that's an option too. But 
you know, I mean, this change has been one of, um, you know, my prior sort of work life was doing art commissions and historical research for people. Um, and I still occasionally do those things. But what I was finding is that my impact was not as great as I wanted it to be. So this um, shift into teaching and mentoring has been an opportunity for me to take all these experiences I've had in 12 years as a preservationist and community change maker in Buffalo and beyond and start to share what I've learned and train people, give them tips, give them inspiration, give them guidance, support through implementation. Um, that's what it's all about. Well, I mean, for anyone who isn't already a, a convert, because you're a very eloquent spokesperson for this, um, but you, you to, to that point, I mean, you've, you've come and spoken at Preservation Maryland events, and it's really helpful because I think not only do you 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 have a really emotional, wonderful way of kind of selling this and talking about the value of this, but you've also been in the nuts and bolts of like actually making this happen. And so maybe we could kind of pivot there for a second. Let's talk nuts and bolts of making change. So for someone contemplating, like let's say an event that would highlight or elevate a historic resource, and it's funny that we use the word elevate because obviously the green elevators um, have been so uh, central to some of the cool work that you've done. But what would you encourage them to do at like the very outset? So they're, they're thinking they've got something cool in their community They've gotten over the hump of someone should do something about this and they realize it's them. <laughs> and so now what, what do they do before at the very beginning? Like what's, the, what's the, um, the thing that you would recommend that they do at the outset based on your experience and perhaps some of the success you've had or even some of the failure that you've had? Because I think that those are both instructive. Absolutely. Uh, failure is so instructive. And um, I think that the earliest stages of a project it's really important to start with your why. You need to start with an understanding of why you are motivated to do this. Um, and I will tell you right now that if you are motivated by um, anything that is outside of your own desire, it won't work. <laughs> and or it will work and you will hate it. Um, you know, um, you really need to be motivated by your own driving force, your own purpose, your own motivation. It cannot be you want to impress somebody, cannot be um, you need some to prove something. Um, it has to come within from within you and you have to really be um, excited and driven and, and that motivation will keep the fire going even in times when it's really hard. Um, so that's part one, always. Um, part two is about saying, um, I really want to do something about this, but I also know that I need to bring in other resources, and that includes people. Um, so starting the, starting the process of collaborating, you need to bring people in. You need to start to bring people in as collaborators, but people often don't know how to go about doing that. Um, what you actually have to do in order to, to get collaborators interested in the work that you're doing is to tell your story. And telling your story will bring people to what it is that you're doing because they will have an emotional connection. Again, we're going to talk about that. People make decisions based on feelings. People make buying decisions. People make volunteering decisions. People make donation decisions, et cetera. They make a decision to go to an event because they're like, ooh, I'll feel so good when I go to that. Right? They don't go... How much does it cost? Like they first have a feeling and then they do something about it. So um, you really must appeal to people's emotions and you must give them something to feel about it. And if you do that, you will find that there's this organic 
attraction that people have to the work that you do because you put your why front and center. You tell your story by sharing before you're ready, which is like, but this isn't a fully formed project. I shouldn't be telling the public about it. It's just an idea yet. Perfect. Go tell people about it. Go and and you can start with uh, mentors and people who you're close to. And then you start to talk to the public about it. Once you've sort of run the idea by some trusted mentors who you know will be um, critically supportive. You know, um, it is important to run that the idea by others just to make sure it's not duplicative and to make sure that um, it's you're sort of doing a focus group, you know, you're, you're checking with people to see how it lands, how it's perceived, if there are other programs and people doing similar things. And if so, how do you find your own niche? Because even if there were other art parties at the grain elevators, which there were, City of Night was still its own unique thing. Um, you know, and I think that um, scale and message and, you know, tone and intention and, and you know, is it fundraiser, is it, et cetera, all of these things um, need to be taken into account because your niche is probably special. But I really think that starting with your why, you can't go wrong. And you do have to tell your story, attract people emotionally, start to bring in collaborators before you think it's time to do so, make it very clear to those collaborators what it is you need from them and how much time you need and check back in with them on the regular to make sure they're still engaged because their why is not your why and you need to ensure that they have access points to what it is that you're doing, right? They have to have an emotional connection to the work too, but it's not going to be the same as yours. So if you go trying to like apply your why to everyone else, it will not work. So I think that um, those are some good foundational steps. The other technical thing I would say is a lot of people um, believe that they have to form a nonprofit in order to start something. And, you know, if you've already done it, then great. You've got some structure in place. But a lot of times you can do a test project and you can align yourself with a nonprofit as a fiscal pass-through. I'm sure Preservation Maryland has, has that experience and um, has done that kind of thing with, with groups and, and events that are aligned. But, you know, um, there's no reason you can't lean on a nonprofit's experience and solidity and say, I want to do something that's aligned with your mission, but maybe you don't have the capacity for it um, or the willingness or the staff or whatever. And, um, you know, this is what it'll do. This is what I propose. This is how much it'll cost. And I need to bring in grants, but I'm not a nonprofit yet. That's exactly why um, you can use a fiscal pass-through. So I think a lot of people um, just kind of say, ah, but I'd have to form a nonprofit. I don't know how to do that. And I'm just going to stop, you know? So don't let that be something that stops you in your tracks. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with <laughs> both of those. I mean, I think all too often people get focused on the what instead of the why. It's like, you know, well, it's I have this railroad station and I have to save it. That's the what and not the why. Like, why is it worth saving? You know, or why why does it matter to people? Or what is the emotion associated with that? So I couldn't agree with that more. And I also couldn't agree more with the, the nonprofit piece. Um, Megan on our staff, who you know, um, constantly rails about this, where it's just like, try it first before you go off and create something or, or partner with an existing organization. Um, cause that's always so critical. And, and you, you mentioned sort of, um, duplicative things and, and that can be a challenge too. And sometimes maybe it should be a program or, or an organization. And then you end up being a, a staff member of that instead of having to create that new capacity and you know the nonprofit world particularly in the preservation and arts world is already so hyper competitive and there's already so much competition out there that sometimes it's better to augment something existing so i couldn't agree with more with with all of that what you said 
why don't we take a quick break here? And then when we come back, um, let's talk about how we integrate arts into preservation, because I think that's always so overlooked, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Nancy Grace Roman, one of the founding and leading scientists at NASA, read by Victoria Patterson, Development Associate at Preservation Maryland. Nancy Grace Roman overcame traditional expectations of women in science to become a pioneer in astronomy. She is best known as the mother of the Hubble Space Telescope. Roman was born in Tennessee in 1925, five years after that state provided 36 and the last vote needed for ratification of the 19th Amendment. Her parents, geologists, and a teacher encouraged her love of science. In fifth grade, she formed an astronomy club. By seventh grade, the family had moved to Baltimore where she reportedly read every astronomy book she could find in the Enoch Pratt Library. By then she remembered, my path was set. She was determined to become an astronomer even after her guidance counselor at Western High School scornfully wondered why any lady would choose to take a section of algebra instead of Latin. She obtained a PhD at the University of Chicago, but even there, her professors thought her education to be a waste since they thought that women would just go off and get married. Roman returned to Maryland to work for the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory and newly formed NASA, where she finally felt accepted as one of the team. As Chief of Astronomy and Relativity Programs, she led many firsts, including spearheading NASA's Cosmic Background Explorer, or COBE. In 1965, Roman heard of the proposal for the first space-based optical telescope. She decided that she'd better jump into the discussion and steer things in a direction that made sense. Thirty years before the Hubble Space Telescope launch, she began giving talks, lobbying for funds, and coordinating the support in the scientific community, thereby paving the way on both bureaucratic and scientific fronts. When Hubble was launched in 1990, it marked the most significant advance since Galileo's telescope in the year 1610. With Roman's pioneering work, she certainly earned the name of the mother of the Hubble. It remains the one of her many accomplishments for which she is best known. Dr. Roman died in December 2018, but her name will live on. It is attached to a NASA fellowship and an asteroid. Lego Toys recently immortalized Nancy Roman in popular culture with their Women of the NASA building set.
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Dana Saylor, who is a mentor and coach to DIY community change makers. Um, and before we took our break, we were talking all about um, sort of the nuts and bolts of making change and um, the the encouragement that Dana would give to change makers sort of contemplating an event or at the very outset of maybe trying to make change or save a historic place or whatever that might be. But, you know, before we took the break, I mentioned when we came back, we're going to talk a little about the arts and you have this, this, you know, beautiful, literally, um, fine arts background. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say I have, uh, two Dana Saylor prints in my uh, Baltimore office. Um, and, um, but a lot of preservationists overlook or they don't consider the role art can play in connecting people to place. Maybe that's just because we kind of live in our silos. Uh, again, another green elevator reference, um, but uh, not even on purpose. But do you have advice for how to think more holistically about this and, and maybe how to engage the artistic community in heritage and preservation? Because I feel like we speak different languages um, and you're like this uh, wonderful interpreter or go-between between these two worlds. So um, for people listening who haven't thought about engaging the art community in preservation work, you know, what would you tell them to do and, and, and maybe some success you've had in that? So uh, it is hugely important to engage creative minds. And when I say that, I mean all kinds of them. Um, I think that everybody who is in preservation has a creative mind already. So it's also possible that you as a preservationist have thought about how to do that, but you're just kind of overwhelmed and don't know what to do. Um, and so you don't do it. But it is so easy to bring in creative minds. And it's sort of like that focus group thing I was talking about before where you start calling people and asking uh, for them to put their eyes on your project. And so you can start with some people that you know in the community or you are connected to through your contacts. And, um, you know, you want to talk to everybody from lawyers to bankers to poets to dancers to etc. when you're starting a project because they all have a different perspective. You know, if you said to a lawyer, I want to throw City of Night at the grain elevators, they'd be like, um, what kind of insurance do you have? <laughs> do you have any contracts? You know, and if you speak to a dancer, they're going to be like, ooh, can I go and see it? I want to, I want to dance there. And what, what kinds of surfaces are there? And, and is it easy or difficult? Like what kinds of things can I, you know, jump off of? We had some of that that was really fun at City of Night. You know, I mean, everybody has their own perspective. And similarly, if you're planning something at a, at a specific place, um, whether an event, a community mural, a garden, a city improvement project of some kind for design, uh, bike lanes, whatever, um, bringing artists of all kinds in is going to broaden the perspective of the project. It's going to give you some new ideas. Um, it will inspire you. It will reinvigorate you. It give you some new focus. And um, basically all it is, is putting out a call. You can even do this publicly. It doesn't have to be sent to individual people. Um, you can publish it in the newspaper. You can put it up on Facebook. You can put it up on Instagram. And you know what? If you don't know how to do that, then just go find a 25-year-old somewhere. Like seriously, it is so easy for other people who are not, um, like I'm 41, and I still have to go Google things when I want to put up like an Instagram reel the other day. I was like, how, how do I do this? I'm just going to go ask a young person. Um, so you just do that, right? And you can also ask the internet. But basically you put out a quote press release where you're saying, I'm putting out a call to anybody who's interested and curious about 
this site, this mural, this idea, et cetera. Um, we're just looking for creative contributions, collaborations, ideas, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of people are just going to find that so interesting that they're going to show up because they're curious. And they may or may not end up being longtime contributors or partners or collaborators, but their ideas will really give new life to what it is that you're doing. When we did City of Night, even though all of us who ran the event were artists, we still had an artist tour of the Grain Elevators. We said, um, anybody who is interested in doing some sort of art or some sort of performance or installation, come to Silo City on this day at this time, and we will give you a tour. And then rather than us trying to assign what we thought the artist should do, we let them decide what they were inspired by. Really, that's a lot of it, is you take the weight of the work and the thinking and the planning a bit off yourself and you, you give it to the community. And you say, what would you like to see here? You know, um, what would be exciting to you? What is a theme or a location that is inspiring? And, and it just, it makes it simpler. Um, you know, the artists have the creative mind for a reason. So leverage it, you know? Even if you're an artist yourself, other people have different perspectives. Yeah, and I think it kind of it, it, it comes back again to this whole why thing, um, where it's you know why does it matter to the artist? What does the artist see? Why do they care about a place like that? Instead of trying to um, maybe inform them or or put your ideas on on top of them, and I think it's it's important when you're dealing with creative minds to let them be creative, right? Um, you know, not not to stymie the creativity because who knows what's going to come as a result of it. So, um, for people who want to learn more or they want to reach out to you, um, how do they do that? And what services are you offering? So someone who's listening in, in Peoria uh, wants to get engaged. Um, how do they reach out? How do they find you? And um, what might you be willing to offer? So right now, I have a couple of different ways that I can be reached um, through my Facebook group, which is DIY with Dana Saylor, Community Change Making. And then also um, people can check out my background, learn more about my broader offerings um, at my website, danasailor.com. But what I am offering right now is essentially in the group on Facebook is an ongoing community discussion about how to make creative public projects happen. And there's different themes each week that I usually address. This week, we're talking about funding it. So that's important, uh, obviously, to most projects eventually. Um, and next week's theme will be get paid. And, um, and so these theme weeks lead up to intermittent boot camps that I do, um, where I do a week of live workshops. And um, they're usually at noon every day. And I'm doing the next boot camp on November 9th through 13th. It's called the Time and Money Boot Camp. Um, get what you need for your creative public project. And uh, each of these boot camps has a slightly different focus. So this one, time and money, obviously, important aspects because people who can't fit a project into their normal daily life will not do a project. And if they don't know how to fund it, then they won't do it either. So these are some of the highest level things that people ask for. Um, so the boot camp is a, is a free training, essentially, for a week. Um, you tune in and you get some really juicy info and I help you understand what it is that you might need for your particular project and give you some high-level advice and some guidance and support and some experience that I've had. And then, you know, you can participate in the homework challenges each day. You can um, really get so much out of these experiences um, and 
it's an, it's a really awesome opportunity to connect with other people who are at, who are pretty serious about making their project happen too, um, which is the beauty of having it in a, in a group like that. Um, so the Facebook group has been a really wonderful resource. There are people from around the world in the group. Um, right now we're at about, uh, 500 members and, um, that's since April. So it just goes to show you that there are a lot of people who are very hungry for this information and they want to understand the best practices. Um, so I'm, I'm offering that the boot camps because it's a great opportunity for people to get to know what it is that I know um, and get some tips and guidance to, to move forward. So the idea is to really light a fire and get you going, get you really excited, get you some information that you need. Um, and then to sort of decide from there, if you want to become like a student of mine, um, I do a three month intensive VIP, um, coaching mentorship. So, um, people who have done the boot camp and they're like, this is awesome. And I need like even more details because, you know, one week of 35 minute trainings is like, I need all the details. So those folks can decide to move into being students of mine for the three-month intensive course. And that's um, all customized and live. Um, and they get access to the library of things that I offer and the things that I've done before, um, as well as customized coaching um, along the way. And the idea is support through implementation. I help them get to a point where they're already doing some low-hanging fruit projects. So it's not just talking about how to do it, it is doing it. Well, that is... Um it's it's so needed and I'm so glad that you're doing it and that you've found a really cool um, and really structured way to to kind of extend your experience to others and um, fantastic that there's already 500 people in that just since since April and it shows you how starved um, the community at large is for that kind of information. So again, if people want to find you, um, it, the Dana Sailor Community Changemakers is the Facebook group, and then danasailor.com is the the website. Is that yeah? All right? The the group, the Facebook group is DIY with Dana Sailor Community Changemaking, and um, you you will find that it will just ask you some membership questions, so you can join um, by answering those questions, and uh, that's just to prevent spam because internet. So we, perfect. And we will put a link to the group um, in the show notes for this and um, over on preservecast.org. Um, and now those were all easy because, you know, they, they speak to your experience and your skills and you know this stuff inside and out. Now we're going to ask you the most difficult question, which we asked you last time, but your favorite historic place or site. This is a hard one. It's very hard because uh, we have emotional connections to all kinds of places, right? At different times in our lives and for different reasons. But um, one that always comes to mind is the, the historic schoolhouse, town hall, and church in my ancestral hometown in Northern New York. Um, it's Pierpont, New York, P-I-E-R-R-E-P-O-N-T. And it's a very tiny hamlet in the middle of nowhere. It's where my ancestors... Um, departed from to participate in the Civil War. Um, and it was actually a hotspot of abolition activity in, in the Northern, uh, North Country. So uh, St. Lawrence County is the county. But I went to visit again last summer um, and the changes that have happened to the old schoolhouse that my grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents all attended um, are really marked. 
Um, it was amazing to see there was a new roof put on. They had uh, the local Amish come and build them a shed where their archives are now housed and they have their computer and things. And I got to see the interior of the church for the first time this last time. And to be in a place where not only you feel something, but you feel your ancestors um, is really special. And I hope that other people have the opportunity to do that because it's, um, it's kind of unforgettable. Well, it is a, a perfect answer, an awesome answer, and a perfect um, end to a great conversation. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. So excited to hear about the good work that you're doing, and hopefully that uh, some of our PreserveCast listeners get in touch and join the Facebook group and um, become uh, mentees of yours. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, hope to have you back for a third time sometime in the future. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.